Logocentrifugal podcast. I'm Chance Lunsford. I'm also Logocentrifugal. Maybe you're also Logocentrifugal. While you try to figure that out, let me introduce today's special guest. I have with me Adam Kokesh. This is a man who came recommended to me uh, when I put out a call and I said, hey, Logocentrifugoons, give me some people who are interesting that you would like to see on the podcast. And your name came up pretty quickly. And, uh, you know, you pretty quickly jumped on it too. And I did a little research and I thought, oh man, this is, this is a guy who I can definitely have on this podcast. <laughs> Listeners of this podcast know that I'm, I like to call myself a, a radical proponent of personal sovereignty and the idea that you were running on a platform of essentially trying to enhance people's ability to live that way. Well, uh, I can definitely get behind that and I'm happy to share this platform with you. Um, but I really feel like you could do a better job of, of filling in the people about your message and who you are and, and what you're trying to do right now. So why don't you take the reins and, uh, and fill in the gaps? All right, my message, who I am, what I'm trying to do right now, how many hours do we have for each of those? All right, no, I'll try to, I'll, I'll, that's, a, that's a great challenge and chance. I, I appreciate the opportunity and, and the introduction there. I, I'll do my best to see if I can hit on each of those in like a, a minute or two each. And uh, I'll start with why, which is that, you know, I was in the Marine Corps and I volunteered to go to Fallujah in 2004. And I saw the greatest evil that government is capable of firsthand because I participated in it and really didn't just go along for the ride, but I was uh, an active participant in that evil. I was ordered even to torture Iraqis at one point, to uh, guard detainees in a sleep deprivation situation. And I want to make sure that that never happens again. That was a big driver of my activism at first, where I, I got out of the Marine Corps, I joined Iraq Veterans Against the War, and at the time, it was very direct to be able to say, people are dying for money, for power, and not for any of the, the publicly stated reasons that the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan were happening in the first place. And by telling my story, I can do something about that. There's a chance that just by me speaking out, the war might end a day sooner, that one life might be saved, that somebody in Iraq as a soldier or, or even... Uh, an enemy combatant, you know, defending their homeland uh, could could have a more conscientious engagement in the conflict as a result of that awareness raising. I felt a, a sort of obligation and, and almost a sense of penance in engaging in that and putting my life on the line as an activist, you know, getting arrested in civil disobedience and uh, interrupting congressional hearings and getting arrested protesting in the street and things like that. And at some point, I started to dig deeper in that process while I was active with IVAW, Iraq Veterans Against the War. And I realized it wasn't enough to be against the war that was going on right then, or a war, uh, or even the concept of the global war on terror, but really war as a whole. And then you can't help but dig a little bit deeper if you're really approaching that challenge with an open mind and say, 
it's really not war. There is a symptom of something, and that something is militarism. And if you just look back even to the founders of America, there were many of them who were very clearly against what they called a standing army of any kind because they had seen, even in those years, that the abuses of a military by the rulers, the kings, the, the, the oligopolies of Europe was uh, in horrendous abuse that resulted in, in the largest scales of human suffering that, that any of them had, had ever known. So you come to realize that the, the perversion of what the founders recommended, that the best defense, the only legitimate defense of a free people is a well-armed population that refuses to be governed by anyone or a militia or market or cooperative-based defense as opposed to a militarized or socialized type of defense, that that is really the greatest perversion of this American experiment. But then you gotta go one step deeper. Shoot, how many minutes are, are we in chance? I'm still on the why here. Uh, but the, the, the final level that you get to in, in what's behind militarism, what makes it possible, is statism. This idea that governments are legitimate and righteous or an effective, efficient, or necessary way of solving problems or the inclination to turn to the state, to turn to government uh, as the first answer when a problem arises. And if you just define government, I, I just published a video yesterday. Uh, I am so excited about this one. It's one of my favorite videos I've ever done. And it was just this past weekend, I was walking through Cambridge, Massachusetts, came across a couple college girls. One was telling me about how her AP government class in high school was a part of why she got into college. And I asked her, well, can you define government for me? And she couldn't do it. Now, she was awesome about it. She was so open-minded and so receptive. It ended up being a great conversation. Normally, you know, you end up embarrassing people on camera. They get embarrassed and you put them on the spot. But these two girls I was talking to, they were, they were so amazing and, and just open-minded and receptive to all this. And so they said, well, they asked me, well, what's your definition of government? And it's really simple. This is the only thing that defines it. Because you ask people this question, they can describe it. But very few can actually define it. And it's that government is a territorial monopoly that within its territory claims the monopoly on the initiation of force. You got to unpack that a little bit, right? It's kind of a technical definition. But again, it's the only one that really accurately defines, gives a clear delineation between what is and what is not government uh, of what we currently describe as government. So obviously, we're not talking about student body government. Or maybe corporate governance, you know, things that, that are, are voluntary cooperative organizations, mostly voluntary, let's say. But what we talk about is the governments that cover the earth. They cover the earth with territories. And within those territories, they claim to be the only ones, the monopoly on initiation of force. Initiation of force is when you're using force against someone who's acting peacefully. Basically, did you start it? You know, if you're being defensive, someone attacks you and you're being defensive, that's not initiating force. They're the initiator. And the initiation of force by government is the coercion behind everything it does. When it comes down to it, taxation is theft. There, there's really no way around it. And they, they, there are kind of two ways that you can argue with the, the idea that taxation is theft, that you could say, that either government owns you and everything in its territory, which is really absurd because that would make us slaves 
to that institution uh, or, or that it's voluntary that you choose to. But we know that it's not. We know that it's coercive, that if you don't pay your taxes, eventually people with guns come and take your stuff. And if you resist, they take you and lock you in a box somewhere. That's what taxation is, which differentiates it from tithing or contribution or, or a purchase or, or something that you engage in by choice voluntarily. When you understand that all human relationships should be voluntary, that anytime you take us away from this ideal state of harmony, that you are reducing our potential as a society, as a species, everybody involved or related to those situations, those relationships that are defined by coercion, rather than cooperation. And when you realize that, you go, that's what government is? Oh, you go, wow, we have to find a better way to do this. Whatever it is that's legitimate, that's good that we're doing with government, because there's a lot of bad shit too. But for all the good stuff, there's gotta be a way that we can achieve that, that filters out the bad stuff. And it's by saying like, let's get rid of this fundamental idea that's wrong, that says, it's okay to use violence against peaceful people if you have enough public support, if enough people vote for it. You know, like, don't hit, don't steal, don't kill. Those are universal moral principles. It's not unless you're a cop or an IRS agent or a soldier. No, even then, the same moral principles apply. So the answer to the why, and this is, I'm still on the first part of this here, coming to the end now. Why is that what I want to do when I see this current paradigm of statism and, and I see all the violence and suffering in the world that's related to it, I want to create uh, a more peaceful, harmonious, and productive world that's based on respect for freedom and individual rights because that's what it is, is going to get us there by acknowledging the fundamental ethical standard that's really at the, at the base of that. So, we good so far? <laughs> I'm with you. <laughs> uh, so what I'm doing uh, about this at this point is I'm running for the Libertarian Party nomination for president in 2020 on the platform of the peaceful, orderly, and responsible dissolution of the United States federal government, taking it through a bankruptcy process that would leave us with 50 independent states and up to 562 finally, truly sovereign native nations. And this came about because in 2012 at Bilderberg, I was debating Jason Burmis, the original info warrior, about statism versus freedom. And he said, well, what would you do if you were president? And I was at first like, <laughs> what would I do if I was president? And, and that was, but the, you know, the, then he, you know, was, he asked it as a serious question. It's like, well, if you're positing a comprehensive worldview that addresses the subject of government, then you have to be able to answer this question. And I said, well, I, I, would, I would quit, go home and get a real job. You know, like it, it's, it shouldn't exist. You know, it, I've seen Lord of the Rings, you know, when they give you the ring of power, you're supposed to throw it in the fire, you're not supposed to put it on. So that's really the basis of this campaign because I, I, I'm not running for president except in the technical sense. Uh, every every time I have to introduce myself as a presidential candidate, uh, I throw up in my mouth a little bit. 
because you have to be a psychopath. You really, there really has to be something wrong with you to, to have the arrogance of a central planner to say, I can wield this power over other people against their will, and it's going to be better for them. There really has to be something wrong with you to even think that, that I'm going to be a benevolent dictator. I can wield this power, and it's not going to corrupt me at all. Like, no, it's, there's, there's something fundamentally insane about that. So uh, I would not be caught dead running for president in the sense that uh, you know I'm trying to be president of the United States. So to be clear, uh, the, the platform is that we declare the federal government bankrupt on day one. We go in, and, and I'm, I'm only president long enough to sign uh, the executive order, whatever paperwork is necessary to accomplish this. So it's that, uh, you know, I, I, would, I would swear in, maybe march to the, the Oval Office and sign one executive order, maybe a few pardons first. You know, uh, Ross Ulbricht, Julian Assange, um, I, I know I'm forgetting a, a lot of other other important, uh, you know, political prisoners in the United States, people who are in jail for victimless crimes in the United States. Basically, everybody who's in federal prison for victimless crimes would, would be immediately released. Uh, this essentially represents an end of the drug war, of course. Uh, but it, 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 part of this executive order is that I resign uh, from the presidency to become custodian of the federal government and essentially then a bankruptcy agent. So immediately federal laws are unenforceable or will, will be unenforced. They're, they're essentially dead letters at that point. And then we begin the, the bankruptcy process where uh, every element of the federal government, uh, we, we'd like to say, you know, localized, uh, liberated, or liquidated, uh, but liberated kind of has to be explained there. That would be like if spun off, for example, the VA. We, we don't want uh, an institution that most people want to exist to, to have to be dissolved, but we don't want it to be funded by taxes and we don't want it to be run by politicians. So really actually pretty easy answer there. We give it uh, an endowment as we spin it off and give every veteran in America one ownership voting share you do that, give the VA to the veterans and the drug war, I guarantee you're not going to have 22 veteran suicides a day. So there are some agencies that are easy in this process. You know, the federal regulatory agencies, boom, you know, get the records to a, a central processing place where we can, we can take out uh, the personal information that should be redacted and then all the records get posted online. Uh, some agencies like CIA, FBI, NSA, these are big knots that are going to take several years to untangle. I don't mean in, in any way to, to, to think that this is going to be an easy process or, or an overnight process. There is going to be, there is, you know, a lot that happens on day one. And, and essentially overnight, every state becomes sovereign and every tribe in the United States has the opportunity to petition and, and be recognized as its own sovereign na nation. And federal laws are unenforceable. That's huge. That happens on day one. Drug war over um, federal taxes done. Um, all of that. And so states at that point are, uh, are, are sovereign, essentially, on day one. And, uh, you know, Department of Defense with the military, we're not going to say get rid of the entire thing uh, as much as that would be a nice jump. Uh, you know, we are being reasonable taking what is in the principles of this localization, what is the first step. So with the military, we take all the weaponry that's offensive, nuclear weapons, long-range bombers, drones, nuclear submarines, things like that, things that, that have no legitimate defensive purpose. You know, deterrence is not a legitimate defensive purpose. Those get de-weaponized and liquidated, 
and then the weaponry, uh, small arms, infantry, tanks, uh, anti-aircraft, things that are legitimately defensive weapons would then be apportioned among the states along with the personnel appropriate to those uh, military functions. And in some ways, people hear this, oh, get rid of the federal government. If, if, you, if you've never even just thought, hey, what is the government? What is the country? These are different things. The country is a beautiful place of resources and people and, and, and tradition and culture. And the government is the leech on our ass. That is not what defines us as a country. We don't have to be united under one government to be united as Americans and American values. This is why localization is the cure for polarization. Today, if a conservative meets a liberal on the street, they kind of have to see each other as enemies because they're forced under this one-size-fits-all, which is really nobody but the profiteers kind of solution. And one of them's going to win, one of them's going to lose. The reality is that they're both going to lose, and, and the corruption is, is going to win. The, the swamp is going to win. Uh, but if you say, look, oh, you can have a conservative in a conservative state, a liberal in a liberal state, you, know, you don't want to be tied to those crazy people over there. Now everybody gets what they want. And, and at least at the state level, Already, you're going to have a, a much more customized experience. So in that sense, what I'm talking about is extremely moderate because you get what you want at the state level. I'm not arguing with you about what national program I'm going to force on everybody. It's you get what you want. Now, the ideal, of course, is that states keep going down to counties. But this is a very long-term process. We're talking about the first step here. And in, in, the, in the other sense, that it's very moderate. There are 22 million people who work for government at the local, state, and federal level. And the federal is only about 3 million. That's 3 million out of 22. And a lot of those are actually going to get transferred to state employment. So say it's you know, really more like 2 million you know, out of 22 million. We, we're talking about you know, roughly 1 in 10 government employees. Can we cut one in 10 government employees? That sounds very moderate, very reasonable, doesn't it? And, and combining that with this idea of localization, you know, it, already it, it's, it's really showing that it has a very broad appeal, that there are a lot of people of different ideologies who, who are able to see that they're more likely to get what they want when government is localized rather than centralized. Hmm. You know, and I don't mean this in a glib way at all, but what are you going to do about that red dot on your forehead when you, <laughs> I mean, I mean that seriously, you know? Yeah, no, no, it's, no, it's, 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 it's a good question. Um, and, and if I may sort of answer, uh, you know, a few, few related ideas to that. First of all, uh, in terms of what is the threat to my life and in, and in drawing this very clear line in the sand and, and making this a very real uh, electoral threat, you know, what is the, the potential consequence? What, what enemies am I making? Um, I am, I'm, I'm really not too concerned about that because uh, I've, I've risked my life for far less worthy causes before. And, for for a long time, you know, I thought of my activism uh, as a kind of penance. Mm. But after a while, you get over that and, and you realize that not only is that not sustainable, but it's not nearly as righteous as just reaffirming 
the same basic motivations in the sense that, you know, when someone says, thank you for your service, I'm always quick to say, what, you mean for serving bankers, politicians, and war profiteers? I don't think so. You know, <laughs> or so, something that, that takes advantage of that opportunity to, to, to really raise that awareness. But there is, when someone says, thank you for being willing to risk your life to protect other people, okay, yeah, that's true. That's righteous. To say that what I did in the military was service, eh, that's kind of bullshit. You know, I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't buy that. You really got to, you know, you really got to stretch things to, to, to call it that. But that there was a righteous intent behind it. Uh, I think that's important. And and what I have done in my activism since then is just, you know, realize that it's a continuation of that for me. You know, part of being. Uh, uh, not a soldier, but a warrior, uh, someone, not just someone who follows orders, but is willing to risk their life to do the right thing, to stand up for justice when you see someone suffering who's willing to do it. So in that, in that sense, uh, it's, I'm, I'm not that worried about it, but there is, there is a little flip side to this. People will say, well, you know, what do we do if you don't do exactly what you say? What if they corrupt you? What if they get to you? What if they threaten you? And first of all, I say, well, if that's the case, if, 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 if I'm elected and I'm walking in and they bring me the, 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 you know, dissolve the federal government executive order pile of paper and put it on my desk. And I go, uh, well, hey, you know what, before I sign that, why don't you bring me the, uh, the dictator for life paperwork and, and let's sign that instead. You know, it's like, if this, that's not a realistic possibility, but if I do that, I've already said, just shoot me, take me out. Like it, 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 if that's the case, yes, I give up. My, my right to life, if, if, I, if, I, if I pretend to wield that false authority in, in, in any way other than exactly as I have laid out. And more importantly, people have asked, you know, is this constitutional? And I say, heck no, it's not constitutional. That's kind of the point. We're appealing to a, the higher authority known as the Declaration, which says, we have not only a right, but a duty to alter and abolish systems of government that no longer serve us. And if some asshole in a black robe or a suit in Washington, D.C. really decides to stand in the way of the will of the American people, when we have said decisively, we're not going to put up with this shit anymore. We're not going to allow the federal government to exist anymore. It's not going to happen. I, I would feel sorry for anybody who thinks they could stand up to the will of the American people when so clearly expressed as, as it would be at that point. And I do think we might need 60% to overcome, you know, whatever they can do to, to cheat around the margins when we get to this. So to be perfectly clear about the timing and, and, and realistic expectations on this, uh, because I understand if I were to say, yes, and we're going to win in 2020, this is going to happen in a year and a half, 20, you know, January 2021. Yeah, it, 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 it might be uh, hard to believe. Say. I, I understand that. And, and I also understand that for any libertarian, uh, and, and I will say, uh, jumping ahead a little bit, Chance, since you said there's going to be a, an opportunity at the end, uh, I do want to plug all the other libertarian candidates for president who are running right now who uh, are, do not have the mainstream media feeding them Democrat donors, trying to get them on the debate stage with a little pay-to-play game 
you know, we really rely on, on grassroots support. We rely on $10, $25, $100 donors to, to make our campaigns possible, not just mine, but, but all the libertarian candidates. So I'm not going to try to name names because I'm going to leave good ones out, but uh, there are at least half a dozen really good quality libertarian candidates right now who are getting around to conventions and debates and, and making a serious go of it. So uh, what I was getting at there in terms of the realistic expectations for any libertarian candidate to win in 2020 would take a kind of would take something really uh, statistically freakish out of the norm for for to, to break the momentum and, and the stranglehold on the process that the old parties have. And I I I I think that that you know black swan events are happening more and more often. As the population grows, as the rate of the human experience accelerates, all of these exciting things we get to live through right now. But I'm not counting on that. And I wouldn't say that any political strategy should rely on a fluke occurrence. Hmm. But uh, we are ready for it. This is not an educational campaign. We are running to win. We will be ready to win. We will have uh, the executive order laid out before the Libertarian National Convention in, in Austin in May next year. So people will know exactly what they are voting for. And it, again, it's not for me to be president. And uh-oh. As, a, as good as a campaign as uh, Gary Johnson was able to muster with the LP behind him in 2016. But we put forth a truly distinctly ethical principled idea that's a real alternative to the old parties that we can bring in uh, just enough to crack 10%. And, you know, it was only uh, roughly 62% voter turnout. Uh, I I think in 2016, I might be thinking of 2012 or or 2008, but it's about that in presidential elections, about 60%. So to get 10%, uh, of that, roughly, I, I, I really think we only need uh, 5% of that, which would be 3% of, of the voting population. And then I think the other half we, we make up from independents and, and sort of the conscientious non-voters. And, and, and I would bet this is a significant amount of your audience, Chance, that there are a lot of people who don't vote because they know it's generally a waste of time. Right. I mean, you come out and vote when there's, you know, a particular local candidate you support or maybe a state ballot initiative like cannabis legalization or decrim or medical, you know, and those are great. Those are, you know, but it's the, you, most people are correct in a, it's 40 percent of eligible voters typically don't vote in any given presidential election. And, you know, and a lot of them are in swing states where or not swing states. I'm sorry, uh, you know, solid blue or solid red states where the odds of, you know, one vote having an impact is almost insignificant. I get that. I think what we're presenting with this is an opportunity to to have a vote counted to stand for something else, no matter where you are in America. And and I think by presenting what is is, is a fundamentally different alternative, as opposed to saying, I'm going to be a kinder, gentler master or tyrant, (laughs) or I'm going to be be that much better. I'm going to put on the ring and it's not going to corrupt me. Now, instead of trying to play that bullshit game to, to present something that's honest and, and legitimate and authentic and a real alternative, I think it's very realistic that in, in 2020, we can, uh, we can break 10% and that that'll set us up for victory either in 24, 28, 
and and I'll run as long as the federal government exists if that's what it takes. Uh, I, I think this is an idea whose time has come. Uh, you know, I might be off by uh, by a couple of years, but I'm I'm very confident in, in all of my readings of history uh, of, of of modern day politics. You see, with like Brexit and in Catalonia, the Scottish independence vote. Um, you know, there's a, a great independence movement in Vermont and New Hampshire, the 51st state project in Northeast Colorado, the great Republic of Texas, California secession, the state of Jefferson. Uh, there's a, a Hawaiian and, and Alaskan independence movement. Um, I just got endorsed by Marcus Ruiz Evans of CalExit. Uh, so the, the, it's, it's a really exciting time to be alive when Pretty much everyone in the in the world has access to the internet, or at least you know is touched by that. And we we don't ever have to say, well, let's do that because that's how we've always done it. Uh, you know, we are free now in the age of the internet, where I think the threat of war is less than it's ever been. Um, we are we're living in the most peaceful times in human history where we, we don't have to feel bound by expectations. We can redraw all the lines on the map. We can start from scratch. And, and getting government down to the local level, to the community level, gives us the chance to, to start new communities, to, to create new societies, uh, to experiment and, or, or to homestead and, and live truly sovereign on your own land, as I'm attempting to do myself, building an earthship in northern Arizona. So, um, yeah, I think, I think we got through the, the, the who, where, what, why and how. So I think, yeah, check. <laughs> That's cool. You know, I feel like, you know, I asked you that question and, I, you know, I don't necessarily think you <laughs> like uh, maybe lightened my concerns at all about the risk. Of <laughs> but what you did do is, you did a pretty good job of developing a foundation of saying, well, so, so what about that red dot on my forehead? Because it, yeah. it adds an air of legitimacy to what you're saying when, when you said, I've already risked my life for something that's far less important to me or far less principled or valuable. You know, I, I went and served. I was already willing to do that. And now I have something that I believe in with all my heart and I, and it's based on all my principles so if that's what it takes to make this happen, then I guess that's what it takes to make it happen. There's this hip hop well, artist, hip hop rock. Hold on, before you move on, I want please hold that. But like, I want, it just occurred to me there are two sort of checks on on me getting shot in all of this that I've I've actually thought out before. I just never put together like this. And one is my book. I wrote a book, and and I'll, I'll show you from the the sticker on my laptop here. That's the title of the book, Freedom. And if, if they were to kill me, uh, I mean, th th this book is, is, is really essentially the, the ultimate red pill, the ultimate way to get all of this in 100 pages. And, and I should tell everybody, it's free, free audio book, thefreedomline.com, free in every digital format possible and a bunch of other languages too. Uh, if they shot me, more people would read my book and they really don't want that. So there's that, <laughs> there's that. And, and, and the second insurance policy that I have uh, protecting my life is that I'm not that good, but I'm the first to really champion this idea of localization in this way and, and, and I think apply it this directly. And if they shot me, somebody better would probably take my place. 
somebody yeah. better looking, more eloquent, more organized, more professional, more money, more, you know, administrative capabilities, professional corporate credentials, all that stuff. You know, I, I don't think they want that. I think they're happy letting, uh, you know, let, let Adam be that guy. <laughs> Really, if they kill me, it would it would only accelerate this cause. <laughs> that ties in exactly with what I was going to bring up. The line from okay. that guy, Rock, is "Ain't no motor <laughs> like a martyr made motor, because a martyr made motor don't quit." <laughs> no, I, I've never heard that. But man, that clicks right away. Yeah, that's beautiful. Ain't no so, motor like a martyr made motor, because a martyr made motor don't quit. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, rolls off the tongue. Um, to take this conversation down that kind of path but it's just the first thing that really occurred to me it's like well these you know these guys are willing to just take out entire countries so yeah yeah what's one dude oh yeah well i I also would like to think that although this isn't really that good of a a barrier but that, that visibility is a kind of protection but that just really goes back to like, you know, more people will read my book, more people will watch my videos, you know, the more they attack me. I, and, and I think th- th- this is actually really the, the ultimate in, in understanding how Trump really is part of the establishment. The media does not attack people it opposes. It ignores them. Yeah. And, you know. And he plays the very same game that they play. He just plays a little more bombastically. He drives yeah. them, you know, he, but it's not as though he's playing outside of any of the systems that were already in place. He might, he might tweak it here or tweak it there, but he's, he's operating right. exactly. Things. It's not like he's dismantled the EPA or dismantled the, nope. the CIA or dismantled the IRS. There's nothing, there's nothing fundamentally different about what he's done. Right. Besides, and he passed, well, yeah, he passed another, uh, false tax cut, you know, bullshit Republican pretend tax cut, which is, you know, really just, hey, let's tinker with the tax code to please our current sponsors. <laughs> you know, if federal spending doesn't go down, taxes aren't going down. And most people didn't see any meaningful tax cut out of that anymore. So pretend like we're tax experts here. Everybody knows that Donald Trump is full of shit. Wait, did I say that? <laughs> <laughs> I gotta win. I gotta. I gotta say. If I say something mean about him, I have to say something nice about him. So I'll say, I really like the natural skin tone of his eyelids. Yeah. <laughs> well, he likes to get the tan on his eyeballs, so it makes it's a. It's a <laughs> so well, I, I I will I will say one genuinely positive thing about Trump, though, in the sense that I I do like what I think he is reflecting as a change in the American sentiment uh, uh, more so than Clinton would have. And I'll, you know, I'll give his his supporters and him that in the sense that, you know, like, for example, with his his opposition to the mainstream media, uh, it, it wasn't so much that he opposed the mainstream media but that he rode the wave of, of anti-mainstream media sentiment that was made possible by, you know, and I give Alex Jones a lot of credit here and, and Chank Uger, the Young Turks. Um, and, 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 you know, count just, just as two big, obvious left-right, you know, independent media institutions that have been, uh, you know, a huge uh, help in moving American tension away from the, 
mainstream media. But really, it's it, it's people like that who deserve the credit, and Trump just kind of you know rode that wave. And I think same thing with the non-interventionism. I, I you know is Trump more or less interventionist than Clinton would have been? You know, it's it, it's kind of a tough call. Some people, oh yeah, Clinton would have started World War Three. Well, Trump is still you know only pulling back, just you know, continuing the general trajectories. Military spending keeps going up. The profiteering keeps going up. Maybe what they're able to get away with in terms of overseas violence goes down, but that's not because Trump has taken, uh, you know, a really principled non-interventionist position so much as just responding to existing public pressure. Hmm. You know, in my conversations around the guy, the thing that I appreciate him for is that uh, he's really sort of if you if you didn't understand before his emergence you most everybody understands now that you know the game the game as it's told to you and the game as it's actually played are not the same thing at all and um you'd have to kind of been hiding out in the unabomber shack to not really understand that <laughs> you know yeah. and he built yeah. that shack because he already understood that so you know it's that's <laughs> kind of one of those things um you know you've had this question probably a million times, um, but it's the, it's the natural question that people have. And it's, well, you know, the taxes pay for stuff. How are we going to have roads and how are we going to have, (laughs) and I mean, I'm sure you could knock that out of the park pretty quickly. So, yeah. Well, well, I'll start with the political answer, which provides for the transition, which is localization. And, And what I'm doing by saying, let's start by dissolving the federal government is really, again, not challenging anybody's idea of government, but just saying, hey, let's make it localized so it's at least more customized and therefore also less corrupted. So moving in that direction ultimately is, yes, let's create a a world where everybody has the choice of opting out of any of those systems, that you can create a new society, that you can opt out on your own property, that you can stop paying taxes if you choose to, at which point they're not really taxes because you know they're they're voluntary as opposed to something that's forced on you. I mean, I guess it, it kind of becomes a semantic thing, right? If if you're on the edge of a, of a county and you're allowed to secede on your own property and stop paying county taxes, are are you is is it a tax? You know, if you if you have to go through that, but it's it's forced on you if you're part of that governing body. And of course, there's the ultimate ideal of that we can see, of course, it's never okay to use violence against a peaceful person, even if it's to take their property to pay for something that you really want paid for. So the question becomes, how can we create these things peacefully, voluntarily? And there are so many options, it's impossible to even say. And this is where we have to give the ultimate libertarian answer of, I don't know who's going you know, who's gonna build roads. Well, I built a road. It's not that hard. Like I, I actually built a road, by the way. Um, my property that I bought didn't connect to any existing roads when I bought it, so uh, I built a road. Uh, and it, don't get excited. It's just a you know nice scratch in the dirt. But uh, what people are really talking about when they say who will build the roads, it's how do we manage communal property and and, and shared property usage. And there are so many better peaceful 
local alternatives that are cooperative and based on harmony and respect for individuals' rights, as opposed to a central authority making that decision for people. And when you don't have someone stealing from people to pay for something, then you have the ultimate accountability, the accountability of the market, which is the right to disassociate, to withdraw your support at any time. So right now, under a government system, you would say, yeah, if you don't like it, vote the bums out. Like, you mean I got to sit here for another two years while they screw us all over and then maybe if they haven't rigged the system by then, try to vote them out? No, I, I'm not okay with that. That's ridiculous. I'm just going to accept. I'm going to submit. I'm going to, you know, bow down and, uh, as long as they're in office and just accept that, you know, uh, arbitrary rule and that false authority, you know, bullshit. Uh, of course, I'm a, I'm a free human being. I'm not going to put up with that. I want I want peace and harmony and justice. And, and, and I, I want people to be able to come together on their own terms. I don't want anybody to be forced into anything. And so there's not a single uh, system or, or social function that's legitimate that you can point to that you can say, see, adding violence to the equation makes it better. Hmm. Bullshit. You take the violence out, you increase the, the, the harmony of people coming together, you're going to get a better answer every time. You know, I'm 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 sort of impressed by one thing here. I mean, a couple of things, but one thing in particular, which is, you know, when Johnson Weld sort of actually made a splash for the first time. You know, Johnson and Weld aren't necessarily real staunch libertarians, or at least hadn't been in their history. <laughs> And that's okay, no. because because they they brought a little bit more name recognition and and, and you know they broke five percent or whatever and that's cool. Um, Not quite. Some states, cl- a close. few states, but yeah. But the the point is like a, you know, a lot of hardcore libertarians or or people who advocate for personal sovereignty looked at those guys and were like, well, that's not that's not really it right there. And and plus, if you you have you have a pretty concrete plan, it sounds like, for how you want to go about doing this, and I'm sure we just kind of scratched the surface on that because there's a lot. Yeah. To, you know, oh yeah. A, it's going to take a lot of work to unravel. No, no, I just, Chance, I, I I know this isn't the time, but like I'm I'm really waiting for someone who's going to like be the political science podcaster with the six hour format, who's going to like drill me down, and we're going to have to sit down in front of laptops and pull up all the numbers and charts, and he's going to grill me on you know, or she on, on every single federal agency, but I'm ready for that. You know, I've thought it out. Like I could, I could easily, I, I could, I do, you know, and, and if you add up all the time in my own productions that I've spent talking about, like each individual aspect of the, man, I have most of a master's degree in political management. I'm that kind of nerd. Like I, I really love that stuff. So sorry to interrupt your question. I just had to point that out. Oh no, you're good. And if I'd known you had six hours right. free, <laughs> But the point the point is, um, before before those guys though, people kind of looked at the Libertarian Party and they looked at like six foot five guys, fifty pounds overweight, wearing a mini skirt and partying, chugging beer, and they thought, well, that's not that's not at all what I want. These guys are not going to be able to handle it. And then you know, those two guys kind of stepped in and said, hey, we're trying to give you know a more polished, practiced look to the to the party and and. And now you are kind of stepping to the fore and some other guys are stepping to the fore and, and saying, okay, you know, we're not, we're not the like 
Viking in a mini skirt and we're not the not really quite there with the message guys either. Um, I'm ready for this. I have this platform and I have it delineated down to every agency, every sort of federal regulation. I'm ready to pick it apart. I'm ready to send it back to the States and I hope that it can continue from there. But even if I just accomplished the dismantling of the federal government, that would be plenty good because then the experiments could kind of go on as they were intended. And that's, that's something that's been missing, frankly, from the public dialogue. And I sort of just wanted to point out on the one hand that I'm impressed that you actually have taken the time to, to really do that rather than just saying, I believe in personal freedom and that's my platform because that's not, that's not going to cut it. And if it gets to the point where you're being taken very seriously on a, on a national stage and by millions of people, you know, they're going to come grill you. And if you don't have the answers, you're going to be asked, what is Aleppo? And, and that's not going to go. <laughs> Like, don't get me wrong. I think Gary Johnson knew what Aleppo was. I think he just had a brain fart and they used that to sink him. And that you know, hey, is what I, I am. I am not now, nor have I ever been Aleppo. Thank <laughs> <you>. <laughs> I'm not Aleppo either. Yeah, yeah. I've never <laughs> been in Aleppo colony uh, or anything like that. So I guess one question I really do have is how how do you propose adding fuel to this train that you're riding, picking up steam and really sort of making some noise and, and getting some real traction and some real notoriety and some real, you know, sort of ground swelling of support? Because like you said, you don't have the media juggernaut. In fact, they're going to do everything they can to try to n not, allow the emphasis to be brought to you. And sure, you know, I have a podcast. There's lots of podcasts out there and maybe you could even get on Joe Rogan and then you'd be exposed to a hundred million people or whatever, but started from the top. Yeah. <laughs> and I just wonder what do you, how do you propose to do that? And what do you think your chances of really getting um, a lot of momentum behind not just the libertarian movement, but you in particular, how's that going to play out? in the coming, you know, 18 uh, months? That, that's a great question. Um, but since you ended it there with the movement in general, if, if I may first share a, a bit of a bigger strategic picture idea, because I used to think we have to wake up everybody or we have to wake up, you know, a, a majority of the population to fundamentally change the system. By wake up, I mean really understand Freedom as an ethical principle based on you own yourself, the non-aggression principle, these basic ethics ideas, don't hit, don't steal, don't kill, as universalized properly to society. And then I thought about how we are now, and we're really, you know, like maybe one or two percent of the population at this point. And if you think about what are the Republicans and Democrats, or what is the establishment's intellectual base, if you go to a typical mainstream party that's you know a good cross-section of america and i think i have a good sense of this not because i party with random people a lot but because uh, i do man on the street interviews where i'm asking random people you know uh, their, their thoughts on on government and, and these important philosophical and ethical topics i think the the base of conservatives and liberals people if you if you, if you go to that party that prototypical hypothetical party it's really about one in 10 people who will enthusiastically argue politics with you.
from a distinctly liberal or conservative viewpoint that's uh, informed and and well thought out to some degree. And so, so that and, and of course, this is very rough. And you know, you could play with the parameters, but you'll see that my point holds here. And so, that's roughly like five percent, five percent of the population. Each is ten percent statists working against our one and two percent. And most Americans in the middle don't care because they're already fundamentally libertarian in the sense that life is good. The the less I can worry about government, but in a sense. Those people are more libertarian than you and me right now because we're talking about government. You know, it's, it's, it's almost better to just say, like, you know what, I'm going to ignore it and live my life and be as, as, as happy and free as I can practically be now. And I, I would disagree that that's, you know, people would say that that's a kind of rational ignorance. I think it's irrational. Uh, I think we're fooled into, into that complacency to, to believing that it's irrational ignorance. Uh, that, and because if we just paid a little bit of attention, we would see that there's an easy way to improve countless lives and improve everybody's lives immeasurably. And just as one example, just really off top, uh, just out of the blue, if you were to remove government borders just as barriers to the free flow of labor, global productivity would double. That means quality of life for Every human being on the planet either doubles or we have to work half as much. I mean, just just that one inefficiency of preventing people from going where work is appropriate for them create just cuts global productivity by half. That's insane. So, um, I know this is kind of a long way of getting back to your question, but if if we if we get enough people to realize that fundamental idea of freedom, we go from two percent to ten percent. That's really all we need to get to because then we're 10% against their 10% and the natural majority is already with us if we present something as, as meaningfully uh, different as localization. And to get to that 10 if we get to that 10%, yeah, we can, we can get 60, 70% to start voting libertarian. I'm not, I'm not too concerned about the difference there because what I'm concerned with is first, how do we win? the converts of that 10%. How do we go from, from 2% to 10%? And it, it's kind of happening naturally. It's happening just with the internet. I mean, with, 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 even if every libertarian disappeared tomorrow, people would figure it out. You know, it's a fundamental truth about human nature that, yeah, we all have a free will and we don't like being uh, violently abused or threatened or, or just have this massive institution of coercion in our lives. No shit. So, you know, they, they say, uh, you know, the best trick for any good politician is if you see a riot, jump in front of it and call it a parade. That's kind of what I'm doing here, hoping that, you know, I can jump in front of this great awakening and, 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 and hopefully channel it and capture it and accelerate it by this one particular pressure point politically. And with what I'm doing now, it's, you know, I'm, I'm doing about an interview a day on average. Um, I'm traveling two or three times a month, mostly for Libertarian Party state conventions. That's what we'll be doing in the spring. I, I am, I think, like you, Chance, you know, one of those kind of tinkering minds that when you see a problem like this, you're like, okay, so where's the shortcut? Where's the more efficient way? And, you know, I, I experiment with different things all the time. We do different things with Facebook groups, with video campaigns, with media outreach, and some stuff works and some stuff doesn't. 
but it all builds, it all contributes. And since uh, my interview with Judge Napolitano on Fox Business three weeks ago, we, we've, we've definitely had an increase in momentum and a sense of urgency that we haven't had over the past couple of years. Because I have been running and, and organizing and building this campaign for several years. We have thousands of volunteers all over the country specifically signed up to be delegates for the Libertarian National Convention, where there are only a thousand seats and we only need 501 to, to win the nomination. So that, that, that's kind of been the focus organizationally. It's almost like we're running two campaigns simultaneously. There's the, the general get the ideas out, build the movement, reach the general public with the, the localization as a message of unity. And there's the recruit delegates, organize the delegates, fund the delegates, make sure that you know we have state coordinators and regional coordinators. And for the people who really want to get involved, that's, that's the most critical thing. It is going to be competitive in, in every state next year. I hope to become a delegate for the Libertarian Party National Convention, but it's, something, it's not. You just go and raise your hand when they say, who wants to be a delegate in California, where they really fill all their 100-something delegate slots and say, yeah, I want to go to Austin in May. Then you go to Austin and, and, and you vote for you know, whoever you think is the best candidate. And, and I, hope, uh, I hope it would be me, but I'm... I'm I'm not set on me either, and neither should you uh, be set on any one candidate or any one person. But uh, I, I hope that anybody who's listening to this, who cares enough about these ideas to get involved, um, I mean, first decide for yourself, you know, what is, is the most, and I know you talk about this in different terms, you know, uh, but, you know, if, if these are the ideas are compelling, uh, I, I define an activist as someone who's motivated by a deep-seated sense of injustice. And, and if you're motivated by seeing all the injustices in the world around government, you want to get active, you know, stop and think and figure out what's sustainable and satisfying for yourself and what really enriches your life and your activism. And I would ask you within that, I would hope to take on the one project of being a delegate to the Libertarian Con National Convention. You can help me out with that. Uh, but that, you know, that's not an insignificant project. It's, it's a lot easier than it sounds. Um, you know, but if anybody wants to help take advantage of this campaign as an opportunity to spread a message that they think is meaningful as a conversation starter with other people, uh, whatever it is that, that, that you find as the opportunity here, people are talking about these ideas now. And like I said, for 2020, it's still a building year for the movement. And giving people the chance to get out and feel included in a campaign. We really want to create that opportunity. Uh, if we ever fail in that, let us know. But of course, just know that our general policies is better to beg forgiveness than ask permission. So if there's something you want to do with, with my name or my ideas or, or, or this campaign, you know, go out and do it. If you want to get involved, you can email me at thefreedomline.com. And so Chance, like I, I wish, like I said, I, I wish there was uh, a, you know, a silver bullet answer. And we could say, if we just did this, every, you know, if we could just make one viral video, you know, if we just had Kokesh 2020 instead of Coney 2012, you know, that, that, that did, uh, you know, what that video did for the campaign, that, that maybe it would just be obvious, you know, maybe, maybe we could break through tomorrow. And, you know, it would be a bit, it would be something that every American would have to consider. And, uh, and, and go, wow, you know, uh, Adam's right about that. America would be better off without the federal government. You know, it might, that might be the black swan moment. That, that might be what, you know, paves the way for being able to win with this in 2020. Who knows?
but I just, I, I know that this is the kind of truth that you wake up to. And, and when you wake up to a truth like this, it's not the kind that lets you go back to sleep. You mm -hmm. cannot unlearn what you have learned. And so really one mind at a time, one interview at a time, uh, you know, one podcast, one conversation, ultimately it's, it's one human consciousness at a time going, wow, we don't have to be slaves to violence anymore. I, I like it. Um, you know, we're kind of, uh, we're closing in on the time we sort of agreed to, <laughs> to but I, I do I have the libertarian time. <laughs> I, if you're cool, I would like to propose maybe an alternate scenario and see what you think about that. Hit me. I, I've, I've had a few, let's, let's call them influential people in the current political uh, environment on this podcast. And the most recent one was Dave Raboy, who is, let's call him a national security strategist. And we talked about what came out of the Frankfurt School with Marx. And, and then I kind of talked to him about also Antonio Gramsci and his idea of the long march to the institutions and a three-generation takedown of essentially our society uh, and putting in a, a more Marxist bent. And that's essentially exactly what has happened by taking over the media and the education. And I, I asked him, do you, do you think that we can turn that around, that we can return to a more, uh, you know, individualist capitalist government. And he said, no, I think we're fucked to, to be, you know, I'm sorry for being crass, but sure. that, you know, it, it is what it is. And I, and I wonder, there's a lot of people who seem to think that, in fact, it seems as though most of the people who know what they're talking about on that sort of level, that's kind of what they think. And that's why they're so upset. <laughs> And so I wonder, with that sort of counter scenario, do you think that that might be a more likely or, or amenable situation to your movement if things just sort of fall apart on their own because the, the sort of hammering away at the foundation finally collapses it, or you don't, you don't think so? No. Um, I, there are a couple things at least that I think I have incorporated into my worldview that people who would say that are missing. And one of them is what is the measure of evil of government or cost or destructiveness of government? Because most uh, people who are any sort of stripe of libertarian seem to make the logical fallacy or, or the, the, the fallacial assumption that big government is always worse than small government. And I can prove that that's not the case with a very simple thought exercise. And, and I came up with this in order to answer the question, how do you measure the evil of government? So would you rather live in a country where the government is huge and consists of approximately half the population 
in its employ. But it does things that usually that that pretty close to approximate what the market would provide anyway. It's generally nonviolent, respectful of individual rights, and yes, it exercises coercion, but just enough to maintain its monopoly on, on, on those services that get it to employing half the population. And in, in doing so, most people don't really object or they don't bother to because it's, 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 it's not causing much harm. They're generally happy with the services. Or would you rather live in a country with a tiny government that's less than 1% of the population, but it murders every firstborn child? Pretty obvious answer there. Even though firstborn child, it's like you're not suffering, you know, it's some, whatever, you know, it's you, you recognize as, as a human being right away that a small government that creates a lot of violence or murders a lot of people is worse than a big government that controls a lot of economic resources. Because you realize that life, that human life, that happiness, that potential there is the only. How big is a government, but how much does it violently or forcefully or coercively take us away from our natural state of peaceful harmony and the value that we would have in that scenario? So in that sense, you go, well, okay, so But the flow of value as a whole, and any economist will tell you that the study of economics is not the study of money, the study of, of the movement of value in, in, in a society or in an economic system. And so if, if you think back to, to, to what you were referring to, uh, again, I would, I would reference the work of Professor Steven Pinker of Harvard, who wrote Better Angels of Our Nature and, and did a great TED talk about this. And, and for, for the things that he, he brings in that are speculative or theoretical, he does, I believe, prove academically, irrefutably, that human violence follows a kind of radioactive decay curve over time. And that, that anything going back, you look back, and, and again, this is, this is not a smooth line. There's a lot of bumps, you know, two steps forward, one step back. But that if you look at the overall historical trend, it's, it's away from violence. And you can make the case that uh, are affected by the coercion of government than ever before, that violence is a sort of dominant force in, in society like never before because of the bureaucratic government where, you know, they only have to put one person in jail for tax evasion and everybody complies, right? Uh, more or less. So again, to, to bring it back to, to the solution here, localization, the everybody gets what they want strategy, you take governments apart from the top down, you localize them, uh, you, you don't have to argue over should government this or should government that. And I think, again, if you go back to, sorry, one more thought about going back in, in history, you know, we start from a tribal type of society where, you know, whoever can pick up the biggest rock is in charge, you know, you know bar humans barely, you know, out of the trees, if you will. And 
that was a more violent, coercive form of, of, of leadership and, and social control. And if anything, it's become more intel, intel, intellectualized and more decentralized throughout human history. And now, this, this is the way that I go to the fringe extreme examples, is that you know, even though uh, I'm, I'm part Jewish, and I, I look at the, the rise of, of, of fringe white nationalism in the United States, not to make a big deal out of it, but it's there. As it really is viscerally kind of disturbing. As a libertarian, I still want to be able to say, look, if you and a bunch of your friends want to get together and form an ethno state on private property where you're not hurting anybody else, you're not forcing your views on anybody else, you're not holding anybody captive, you form a voluntary ethno state. I want you to have that right. And to the other extreme, you're a gun grabbing socialist who wants to run around naked in a commune. I'll watch from a distance. I'm not going to live there, but I want you to have that right. I want you to be able to organize a community as you see fit, as long as you're adhering to these basic ethical standards, I support you doing that. And, and, and uh, you know, that really kind of transcends, uh, you know, these, these challenges of, uh, of divisiveness, or even like you, you bring up that you say most people who look at this, who you've talked to say we're fucked. Um, I, 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 I really vehemently disagree. Hmm. You know, that's a, it's refreshing <laughs> to be frank, to, to hear somebody say that. I mean, I, I, I look at things and I think about them quite a bit and I wonder, you know, I, I have, I have these two, these two conflicting narratives inside of my head that say, well, more than two, but you know, it's just like, okay, well, there's a lot of signs uh, pointing to dissolution, but there's also a lot of signs pointing to uh, that sort of irrevocable connection that people have to other people and that most people yes. are good. And it's, it's just like the old Bill Hicks. Yes. You know, he says, you look at the news and it's, it's death and it's disease and it's mayhem. And then you look outside your window and it's just crickets and you go, well, where? <laughs> it's like, well, it's not, it doesn't, it's not there. I mean, it is in some places sometimes, but even in the worst neighborhood in America, it's not really? just like somebody's going with a machine gun every single day and just blasting houses. I mean, we're talking, you know, a, a couple hundred deaths a year, not thousands upon thousands upon thousands in a single neighborhood or anything. It's, you know, it's not like that. And, and we're fortunate, we're fortunate, you know? So I, to your point, it's like, yeah, man, it, it's not as bad as it seems. Maybe. <laughs> Was it also Bill Hicks who said that when you get elected president, they bring you into a smoky room and they, the projector screen comes down from the back and the projector flicks on and then they show you a clip of the Kennedy assassination from an angle that you've never seen before. That's right. And the projection stops and the screen goes up and the lights come on and somebody says, any questions? <laughs> and the only one you're allowed is, what's my agenda? That's right. Yep. Yeah, and, I, 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 and as much as I believe that there is a lot of truth to that, even if that literal manifestation doesn't happen, I think, I think that actually does happen in between uh, being elected president and taking office with, with all the security briefings and everything they do to the president's elect, that there is that. The, 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 the lines are made very clear. But uh, again, this is where, you know, I think every, every attempt to tinker around the edges is going to fail. 
But if the American people are given the option to say, nope, system's not going to fly anymore, it doesn't really matter, uh, you know, who sits on the throne when there is no throne. Hmm. I like it, man. I like that. And I think that sort of breath of fresh air um, and that note of positivity is a great place to, to kind of start the beginning of the end here. Um, so uh, well, let me just give the last, the last big, the last big thing before before you try to actually wrap this up. Yeah, drop it. Uh, the 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 the, opti- the 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 one other piece of my optimism that I want to share with people, since we've gotten to this point and people are still listening to, to, to us like this far into the podcast, to I, I would like people to understand what is the source of my techno optimism and understanding that technology accelerates the human experience, that humanity progresses, that the distribution of technology increases over time from when the printing press was invented for books to be everywhere in the world versus the automobile versus the cell phone versus the smartphone. You know, it it just accelerates every generation of technologies actually distributed that much faster they are decentralizing they are fundamentally empowering and the more empowered people are the less inclined we will ever be to have to turn to violence and this applies to the super class too to the elite asshole psychopaths who are able to raise their children in abuse and isolation in a way that passes that psychopathy on over the that has over the last several thousand years in which humans have had the uh, technological means of accumulating vast sums of wealth and power and pass it from one generation to the next. It is psychopaths who have been able to get that power. And they have been able to actually, if, if not by genetics, by behavior and control, pass on that psychopathy to their children. But those kids grow up with the same internet as we do. And, and that is changing now. That information is changing. That change started changing with books. It's, it's changing faster now with the internet and, and the idea that the fear that, that drives that system of control and violence is sustainable in a world where we all have the truth button right there, one click away on the internet, where people like Chance are able to host podcasts like this, where I'm able to have my YouTube channel and get my book out for free. This would not have been possible. And this is a process that is accelerating. I call this the asymptote of the human experience. I know an asymptote never gets to vertical, but it's kind of like, as far as our puny minds are concerned, we can look at the change of the last, say, 20 years of the the era of the, the and I would even call it maybe the infancy or the, the um, adolescence of the internet, right? But the last 20 years of the internet has been a force. The change that's happened in the last 20 years is equivalent to the change of the last 200 and of the last 2,000 and then of the last 20,000, you go to 200,000. You go, wow, yeah, for a long time, shit was pretty flat technologically and then it's this incredible spike. But here's the crazy thing you have to realize then, now going to the other side of this, looking forward. Because if the change of the last 20 years happened over the 200 years before that, it means that that same amount of change could happen in the next two years and then in the next two months and then weeks and then days and then hours and then minutes and then seconds. And at some point that change is going to be 
to the point where artificial intelligence is here and the the human the, the puny human mind can't even comprehend the, the rate of that acceleration of the human experience. Just a quick little atom fantasy here, uh, the, where I see these technologies converging. We understand 3D printing. We understand that now we have molecular 3D printing, at least in the labs, and that as with all technology, it gets smaller, cheaper, wider spread, and more accessible over time. You're also about to have a computer that's able to fix with your brain. Whether it's attached or it's on the side, who knows, you'll probably get to choose. But what's going to happen is that molecular 3D printer is eventually going to fit on your fingertip. And it's going to be controlled by the computer in your brain. Molecules, it gets to do it with the molecules in the air around your finger, which means you are going to be able to zap stuff into existence just by thinking about it. Yeah, we're all about to be freaking wizards. And if you don't think you're going to live to see it, Look up Dr. Aubrey de Grey and the concept of longevity escape velocity. If you're young and healthy today, you are not going to die of old age unless you choose to. Yeah, congratulations. You already made it. Go team people. We're there. All of a sudden, getting rid of all of government seems almost like a silly afterthought. Like we still have this thing, but the idea of getting rid of the federal government as one first step and localizing it seems really, really moderate, small, incremental change compared to what's coming with the, the, the technological revolution that we're already part way through. <laughs> Just to kind of be a dick, <laughs> I, might, uh, I might suggest that the technological revolution is a Gaussian distribution. Driven by Moore's law more than that. No. Uh, the trends are clear, but you want, yeah, you, you want to throw down nerd on me. We can get into sine waves and all that. I know no, I, was, I, I was that kid in high school. <laughs> Fair enough, man. <laughs> and look, my, I have plans that involve the whole world too, man. And, and I see a lot of ways to improve the physical spaces that people live in and the way that communities function because I'm very into permaculture, which is something you sound like you're hip to because you're making it. Oh, yeah. So yeah, yeah. If you know what ownership is, there's, there's a lot of, there's a lot of layers to what can be done just sort of on a personal level and on a small community level too. food forest and, and these kind of things. And, and, you know, I'm not necessarily going to get deep into that, but there's, <laughs> there are things being done right now so that when, the time comes that we're able to live that way. People are already performing the experiments and putting them together and putting proof of concept together so that when it's time to kind of come together and make a functional community, the stuff is there. And I'm very optimistic, to be frank, about a lot of this stuff too. And also, to be frank, I don't really care how we get there as long as it's not overtly violent and destructive. You know, I don't want to be building a, um, a food forest on top of a nuclear wasteland. That just doesn't seem like the, the thing for me. But yeah, there is, there is, that gets me to the one thing that scares me really about all this moving forward in the future is that we might 
I mean, the fact that we came up with the atom bomb before we got rid of government led to the death of hundreds of thousands of Japanese. We, it's not that government was necessary then. We just didn't have the awareness that we're developing now. And I, I wonder if there's some other technological threshold that will give government an incredible destructive power before we solve the, the psychological problems behind government. Um, but you know that just makes me want to dance that dance that much harder and happier and faster and and you know dance down the establishment as soon as we can so that it doesn't have the ability to hurt people when that technology arrives. That's look without optimists, uh, how are we supposed to how are we supposed to really get through <laughs> some of this stuff? You know, so I appreciate that, um, and. And I also appreciate you taking the time to come on this podcast because, you know, clearly you're a very busy guy and you have a lot on your plate and you have a lot that you intend to do. And there's, there's larger platforms than the logo centrifugal podcast. That's for sure. Uh, but, and so, uh, you know, I appreciate you taking the time to let me pick your brain and to share your thoughts and, um, and your plans and your optimism with me and with my audience, because, uh, the people who listen to this podcast are, are pretty consistent fans of this podcast you know they go back and they listen to the old ones and then they bring it up to speed because i try to reveal the heart and i show my heart and and that's that i think is missing from a lot of places and and i'm glad that you shared yours here and let's say that the people who are listening to this podcast i mean we've had a conversation and i'm glad and that's cool but the people who listen to this podcast let's say that one of them sitting in front of you and whoever that is that you see in your mind, they say, you know, Adam, I love your ideas. I, I really could get down with that. And I, I would love to have a greater degree of freedom in my personal life. Um, and I understand that that's going to take some responsibility on my part too, with freedom, like freedom is sort of necessarily tied to responsibility, but what, if they're sitting in front of you and they say, okay, I get this, but you know, like you said, my vote, I'll go out and cast my vote and that's just my one vote, but what can I do in my own life to start to maybe build momentum towards personal freedom, personal sovereignty, personal responsibility that I can start right now today, that I can start living these principles that you espouse in a way that will be meaningful to me and the people around me right now. What would you, what would you tell that person sitting in front of you asking you that? I would ask them questions first. I would want to know the hopes and dreams and desires and family connections and traditions uh, and, and the, the circumstances that they're in that drive them. And I, I hate to give kind of a you know, Buddhist monk answer here to say the answer is within, but that, that's really... doing and what I'm doing as a result of this realization and really the most important is seeking to minimize your contribution to the violence of government uh, the, the most powerful thing that we see is people in the military who get this message uh, often decide either to not re-enlist if they're close to, to getting out or if they're not get out as a conscientious objective 
And I'm a big fan of GIRightshotline.org, so I send a lot of people there. Um, not sending your kids to the military, not join. I mean, more more often than getting out, you know, I hear from people who say, I was going to join the military, and then I saw one of your videos, you know, addressing that. Uh, I have one that's called uh, Joining the Military is an Act of Cowardice, Ignorance, or Greed, I think. I, I'm, I'm, there might be a fourth thing that I'm missing in there, but, you know, pretty hardcore stuff in terms of, of, of you know, you know uh, deconstructing the, the, the core of, of militarism. Um, paying less in taxes, doing your best to minimize your contribution to government violence in that sense. How you interact with law enforcement definitely changes. Uh, when you get over the idea that laws are sacred or in inherently deserve to be respected because people who were elected to office wrote those words on paper. Uh, but, you know, also understanding that you, you need to stand up to police at, at, at most times uh, and assert your rights, that recording police, recording government officials, asserting your rights, that, that's really a big practical point, I think, uh, for a lot of people is understanding in this day and age that, generally speaking, the, in the United States, the, the, the First Amendment is, is, is pretty well respected that the right to record government agents in public is usually uh, respected. Because if, if you hold up a camera to a cop, they don't know if you're live streaming or not. If you take the camera, if they're gonna, you know. Um, and and, and I, even then, I, I, I hesitate to give any of these examples because for example, some people, if, you know, if, if you're in this country illegally, maybe you just want to avoid cops and maybe there's a better, there's a different way to navigate that for your circumstance. Then, then I would suggest is you know your average, you know Jewish white privileged American male um, who you know has a Marine Corps tattoo and you know I'm I'm pretty burly you know like I can walk up to cops and know that at least they're not gonna just pick me up and throw me around you know so there's there's a certain bias in, in all of that I, I really would recommend for people to start with my book Freedom because uh, it's such a short primer it's a hundred pages. And for, for people who feel like, you know, they don't need the philosophy, they're like, how do I apply this? They want the answer to that question. Start with chapter nine. I'm answering here with, with something, a uh, section out of chapter nine called emotional freedom. And, and this really is the most important thing to take at, uh, away from this. It'll drive so much else. You know, we've been fooled by the words of Thomas Jefferson almost, and it's actually the, the, a rewording in the final draft. It says, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. You know, if you don't have life, you don't have liberty. If you don't have liberty, you can't pursue happiness. And, and, and maybe if you don't have liberty, you can't pursue certain material things. But to confuse that with happiness is a really bad misunderstanding that we have taken away that, it, that puts happiness after freedom. That as if happiness is the uh, the goal, the the end state, the something to be achieved, and that's absolute bullshit. I know you know this that that happiness is a choice, that that your state of mind is a choice, and that this this emotional freedom that we have is 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 the most obscene way that we give up our personal sovereignty of our minds. Because yeah, we're all animals here. Okay, not challenging that. Shit's gonna hurt. Shit's going to make you unhappy. You're going to have responses to all the shit that life's going to throw at you. 
And that response in the moment might be an emotional, immediate response to a stimulation. But your response to the response as a conscious animal, that's your choice. And to stay in that is really the ultimate freedom, that emotional freedom. And yet we give that up. And when we give that up, we allow ourselves to be manipulated by, by government, by authority, by people in our lives, by people in our families, by scam artists and racketeers, just people around us all over the place, because we don't say, no, my mind, my dominion, I own this shit, I own myself. And when you really internalize this, and I, I, I think I've gotten better with this over time. I'm not trying to sit here like I'm some you know, Zen Buddhist monk sitting on a mountaintop who's just like in the perfect state of mind all the time. No, I'm fallible. I'd rather jump out in the world and I would rather feel that pain. I would rather experience those negative responses, but I would never want to give up my emotional sovereignty to the external world. That's a message that I can definitely get behind and identify. And I've tried to share it (laughs) for many years now. And, you know, people, people even give up their emotional sovereignty to the part of themselves that doubt that they have it in the first place. And it's a real, Mm -hmm. it's a pretty twisted cycle that you can get caught up inside of your head. Um, And, and I agree with you that if you, you know, if you sort of master your ability to choose the frame from which you, look at these issues and decide how you're going to feel about it and how you're going to respond. Even if you have a momentary, you know, like for example, I have things in my life that uh, I have a lot of experience with and I didn't always deal with them that well. And when they come to my life, you know, I have that instant reaction. Okay. um, But is this going to serve me well? And is this how I want to be? And is this who I want to be? No, it isn't. Take my breath and then choose another way. And am, am I going to say something sometimes that, I would be better off not saying, yeah, I'm mean, you know, <laughs> am I going to let that ruin the rest of my life because I, I had a second of, you know, just like gut reaction. No, of course not. I'm going to move forward. And when people really yep. get their head around that, that's, that's like the first step to really claiming your freedom. And I can, I can definitely uh, put my name behind that one. So look, man, this, this has been a, a very interesting conversation. And I think there's a whole lot here for people to, um, sort of get their head around to start to unpack. And once they maybe get into it and they have some questions and things, I'm sure they're going to want some more resources and they're probably going to want to talk to you because your energy is infectious, man. You, you know, you're ready to go and you're just like so excited to, to deliver your message. And that's another thing I can understand. So if somebody wants to kind of understand more, I know you got your book and everything, but where can they find your social media, YouTube, your website, this kind of stuff, tell them where you're at. And, you know, like I said, if you want to, if you want to say hello to everybody or anybody, this would be a good time to do that too. It's all through the main website there. You can see in the, in the fine print, thefreedomline.com. You can find me on all the various social media platforms. Uh, I actually do hang out, uh, significantly more than I should probably on Twitter and and Instagram and Facebook. And I read a lot of comments on my YouTube videos and you can find Kokesh for president.com without having to uh, remember how to spell my funny last name um, from, from just going to the main website, thefreedomline.com. If anybody wants to find me, please reach out. I, I check my email 
myself still. I, I pass a lot of stuff off to people on my team to get people uh, organized as volunteers in social media, media outreach, or with delegates. But Adam at thefreedomline.com, pretty obvious. And I'll, I'll just end by saying, uh, you know, to support this program, if you're enjoying this podcast enough to be this far into it, I hope you share this episode. And I hope you share other episodes that, that mean something to you. And I hope you support Chance and his work because people like him and I do not have mainstream corporate sponsors behind us. And hopefully we never will. So <laughs> we rely on, on an active, engaged audience. The technology is incredible and liberating, but it does nothing without deliberate, conscientious usage. So I hope you'll be a deliberate, conscientious audience member and support this production, share this production, financially support this production, and make sure that independent media is, is uh, going to be a force forever in, in the conversation. Well, I appreciate that. And Dan, dude, you're quite the pro there. That was, that was pretty slick. <laughs> and I want to, I want to say I, thank I, you. I, I've done this a couple of times. <laughs> yeah, man. I want to say thank you to Marcus too. You know, that was, yeah. uh, he, he, he helped uh, streamline this thing. And so hopefully he listens and he, uh, you know, he gets to hear his name said because you know, it's, it's cool oh, no, to have that happen. He reviews a lot of the media I do. So for people who don't know, Marcus Poulos is, is our press secretary great dude he's a volunteer and he's the one who's arranged all of my interviews for the last year and a half you know an average of uh at least one per day for the last year and a half so if anybody ever wants to interview me marcus at thefreedomline.com uh yeah he's he's done an amazing he's but he's tired of hearing my voice at this point uh, listen man i'm tired of hearing my voice so i can only imagine <laughs> so thanks again marcus for that and look um uh, is there anything uh, is there anybody else you want to say hello to or any any sort of parting words you want to offer well i mean when you put it like that i i, I would give a shout out to the uh, the intellectual godfather of the libertarian movement murray rothbard who was so influential on me I would have to give a shout out to the Libertarian Party itself for the force it's been in the movement and everything it's meant to me and I encourage people to join LP.org. And if you can't put up $25 a year, which you should do anyway, there is LP.org slash free membership. And uh, of course, LP.org slash join for their main join page. And to my campaign team, um, to everybody who has volunteered, who has, who has been on my staff for the last, uh, well, year and a half since we announced to everybody who has donated ever to support my efforts running for whatever office or in my media production for all of my Patreon supporters and everybody who's ever shared any of my content and taking the time to read my book, you know, thank you for making it all possible. Hell yeah, man. And look, I don't, I don't normally necessarily do this, but oh, to, those you out there, to those of you out there who, who love your freedom and want it to be protected and want to have the space to claim it and to decide what you're going to do with your life and your body and your space. And Adam Kokesh is a guy who is out there trying to make sure that that is a possibility and that it extends even deeper into the very framework of the life that you live. Get out there and support him, get out there and listen to him, get out there and help his message be spread so that you can have more freedom in your own life and your family and your kid and your generations can have that in their lives 
spread the message, help the man along, make it a reality instead of just a dream. And it's only through working together that we can accomplish that. So look, man, thank you very much. I really appreciate it. And I think my listeners are going to appreciate it and have a lot to to take away from this. Um, So if you're good, I'm good. Peace and love, y'all. This has been the Logos Untrivable podcast. I've been Chance Lunsford. He's been Adam Kokesh, and we are out of here. We here at the Logos Untrivable podcast work hard to bring you the highest quality audio, the best editing, and the most professionalism of any podcast on the market. Either that or we do the exact opposite. Either way, consider supporting the podcast. If you'd like to support the podcast, you can support the podcast by supporting the podcast. There's a link somewhere, and I encourage you to click the link to support the podcast professionally.